Hey, it's me. Before we get into our discussion on basic income with Hugh Siegel, very excited about that. Want to mention that we are still taking Patreon subscriptions. If you head to patreon.com slash ontarioloud or ontarioloud.ca, hit that Patreon link. You can support us from anywhere from $3 to 15 bucks a month. Of course, if you find yourself with some spare income at this time, if you're one of those lucky people and you haven't yet, maybe go and donate to your local food bank and help those who are food insecure uh, first or your local hospital to help them procure the kind of personal protective equipment that is so in need at this point. But if after doing those things, you have $3 left over, we promise it'll go towards helping a podcast that will bring you content that will help you navigate the politics of this brave new world. That's it on the show. Welcome to Ontario Lab, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs hosted by recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alvin Tejo. And today we are going to be returning to the topic of basic income. Basic income has been in the media a lot lately as governments of all political stripes have rushed to strengthen the social safety net as COVID-19 has required people to stay in their homes and not participate in the economy as they normally would. With many comparing the $2,000 per month in the uh, Canada Emergency Response Benefit to a basic income. But what would it look like if it wasn't a pandemic fueling the need to put a base of financial support underneath people? What if we just did it? Well, it wasn't that long ago that Ontario actually had a basic income pilot. It was cut off by the Ford government shortly after they took office. Though short-lived, an official study of the pilot was released earlier this year by researchers at McMaster University. Among other things, the study pointed to better health, living, and employment outcomes amongst people who received a basic income. And to talk to us about that study, we are so excited to welcome former Senator, former Principal of Massey College, former Chief of Staff to Premier Bill Davis and Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, Hugh Siegel. Hugh, welcome to Ontario Loud. Delighted to be here. Hugh has been an outspoken champion of basic income in Ontario and across Canada. He's wrote columns in the National Post. Uh, he recently endorsed Alvin or he, when he ran in the Ontario Liberal leadership on the basis of basic income. Uh, and he actually spoke at the launch event for the McMaster Basic Income Study that we want to discuss today. So uh, super excited to have you today, Hugh. And maybe you want to start by asking sort of a, a high level question. It's hard to imagine someone having more of a life in conservative politics than you. And... I think it doesn't sort of hit you immediately as a conservative idea. And I'm curious, what brought you around to the idea of basic income? Is it where you started? And where do you think the conservative movement is on it now? Well, um, growing up in a, uh, in a poor household was a helpful start because it wasn't a theoretical question. You actually saw what happens when hardworking people don't have enough money to um, the basic challenges of food and rent and heating, and uh, back in those days before universal health care, uh, drugs and medical costs and all the rest. So that, that conditions you to understand that that's, that's a reality for a lot of people. And however bad our financial situation was as a family, there were many families who had a worse financial situation than, than ours. My instinct was always, when I got into politics, and I got interested in politics, it was really because of... Uh, uh, Prime Minister Diefenbaker, who came and spoke at our school in 1962, the 1962 election. I was all of 12 years of age, and he didn't make a partisan speech. Uh, he was The writing was a safe liberal writing. It was the writing that was head by, held by J. Allen McNaughton, who was the liberal speaker of the House of Commons, and it was the seat that was given to Pierre Trudeau to run in as a safe seat in 65. 
Um, and so uh, Diefenbaker would come to a seat like that, not because the Tories had any hope of ever winning it, but because it would show that um, they're prepared to take their prepared to take their message anywhere. And a pretty non-controversial place to go is a high school auditorium, where the fact that the prime minister is coming is, in and of itself, a happy event, regardless of the fact that 98% of the people in the room were not planning to vote for him. And he did. And he, but he made a remarkable speech. He didn't make a speech about this party or that party. He made a speech about his view of the country and his view of the country was a place where no matter how no matter how many syllables there were in your name or where you came from or whether you were a farmer or an immigrant or a refugee or whether you were working on the line at a plant or whether uh, there was a place for you at the family table and that his job as prime minister was to make sure there was always a place for more people at the family table and that's how he described it in pretty simple terms to a to a school crowd with a lot of parents and others present. And I um, was quite impressed by that. I'd never thought about politics or anything like that before in my life. And that's when I began to think about that maybe something more in life than just playing hockey, going to synagogue and getting your work done in school. There was something more added to that. So that's where it all began. And so it came from a very, he was a populist. He was a prairie populist, but he came from the same place as Tommy Douglas, Saskatchewan. And he came from the same place as parts of Social Credit, who'd actually started the basic income proposition many, many decades ago. And so as such, uh, that, that sort of compelled me to think about what politics was really about, making sure there's room for everybody in society to make their own way and get a fair shot. And uh, that's where it began. And so that became a theme of my involvement as a young conservative as a conservative on campus, University of Ottawa, as a vice president of the conservative PCYF, Progressive Conservative Youth Federation of Canada, all that stuff. And that that became part of um, the sort of conservatives I became associated with, like David McDonald, who was the MP for Egmont, Prince Edward Island, elected in 65, who worked across the aisle with a Roman Catholic minister to deal with the impact of poverty in, the, in his part of Prince Edward Island which was the Western part. And that was a problem that involved alcoholism and substance abuse and family violence and a whole bunch of other sorts of things. And, um, and that of course leads you to the notion that while money doesn't make people happy, money helps people survive and people don't have money, it's problematic. And he prepared a paper for a meeting in 1969 uh, at the, um, it was called the, 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 uh, pro the Priorities for Tomorrow Conference, so the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada in Niagara Falls, and it was about a uh, paper on the basic income. Mm -hmm. uh, and it had, been, it, it had been encouraged by, if you can think about it, that great left-winger Richard Milhouse Nixon, President of the United States, who got elected in 68 on a law and order platform, which was understandable after what happened to Hubert Humphrey at the famous Chicago Convention of the Democrats. And when his people in the White House said to him, if you want to deal with law and order in the inner city where the crime rates are really high, you've got to deal with poverty. And they developed something called the Family Benefits Program. By the way, these were young Republicans uh, with names like um, Cheney was his name, and <laughs> Rumsfeld, and Moynihan. These were the young guys who were saying to the president, if you don't deal with poverty and if you don't have some sort of automatic top up for families in difficulty, families come apart, kids don't get proper parenting and you get a whole cycle, which is really destructive. So that's where the debate began. Of course, Canadian conservatives will always have their ear to the wall or what's going on in 
other movements, etc. That's where the debate began, really, in Canada. So it didn't it didn't start from the left. It actually started from a sort of center-right American president, who, despite his many failings um, on those issues, was relatively balanced and even-handed. You know, I'm wondering because basic income has been an idea that's been around, obviously, now for several decades, and it has had its champions in in every party, right? Uh, you amongst the conservatives, um, the progressive conservatives, uh, there are some... I believe I might be one of the early liberals to, to sort of adopt this, um, but you have, some, you have some new Democrats and a lot of Greens who've been supporting this idea as well. But it's still viewed as a more extreme position. Um, it was notable for people to say that, you know, I was supporting basic income because I was the only one there who had pushed it um, and supported something beyond just a pilot. Um, why do you think the public still views or party members still view this as a non-mainstream thing. What do you think is the biggest issue that that voters are having um, with this? What's the hang-up? Is it just because they believe people aren't going to be working? No, I think um, Alvin. I would say there, there. You know, you got to, One has to be honest about one's own failings. Um, it should not be easy to make a fundamental change in income security of of this kind in a democracy where there are a whole bunch of different views that are held honestly and honorably by different people. So. You have to be able to make a case which builds a constituency which is broad, which encompasses all political parties and people in business and people in labor and people who are going about their day-to-day lives. So there are some marketing issues, I think, which have not been handled well. Um, You know, when you say guaranteed annual income, even though in 75, the Davis government brought in the guaranteed annual income supplement for seniors called GAINS, G-A-I-N-S, well, everybody was comfortable because it was for seniors. They had spent their lives. They had fought in the war. They had gone through the depression. They had paid their taxes. And if they're in difficulty financially, they should be helped. Everybody had no difficulty with that at all. It passed without any significant controversy, even though it was called the Guaranteed Annual Income Supplement. I think now when you say to people, and I think what we're going through now in in our coronavirus crisis will change this. The notion that you say, well, it's guaranteed, it's a guaranteed annual income or it's a basic income. People say, well, no one, no one guarantees my income. I gotta go to work every day. If I don't go to work every day, I don't get, I don't get paid. So why would we guarantee anybody else's income? And then that helps those people on the far right say, well, of course, if you pay people to do nothing just cause they're alive, right? Why would they ever wanna work? Why would they ever work? And the truth is, um, the statistics are totally clear. 70% of Ontarians who live beneath the poverty line have a job. Some have more than one. They just can't earn enough to get above the poverty line as a relative measure in their own community because of the costs that exist. So I think there's some marketing issues that have to be addressed uh, that have not been addressed by proponents. And I'm just as guilty of it as anybody else. Um, I also think... um, you need to build a constituency that understands that in the end, it's not about the poor or the rich. It's about everybody's need for liquidity, i.e. enough cash to get by without judgment. The problem with Ontario works or the Ontario disability support program or any of those sorts of things, or even employment insurance, it's about judgment. The system has to judge whether you are deemed to be eligible 
up against a serious series of criteria and rules that have been established because it's taxpayers' money and it has to be spent carefully. I get all that. But in the end, um, poverty is about not having enough money. Mm -hmm. Whether you are poor because um, there is uh, some uh, physical or other kind of disability, whether you are poor because the only plant in your town that was providing employment shut down, whether you're poor because there's a language difficulty and you can't find work, whether you're poor because you're coming from uh, previous generations who were poor and therefore you didn't have the opportunities for education and networking and whatever the reason is actually doesn't matter. What matters is that you are not earning enough to get by and we have the capacity to fix that. And that's the case that I don't think the proponents have made very, very well. We can produce liquidity overnight for the banks. Good thing. Not, I'm not opposed to it. I wasn't opposed to it in 08, 09, mm -hmm. and I'm not opposed to it now. Banks are fundamental to how our system operates, and liquidity for them and greater leverage is helpful for everybody. But it doesn't add up that we can provide instant liquidity for banks, but we cannot provide liquidity for low-income people who fall into an income-free zone through no fault of their own. Now that it's more widespread, this phenomenon of being income-free right across Ontario and right across Canada through no fault of the individual at all, um, I think more people may be a bit more open-minded to the notion of what a basic income would provide in these kinds of circumstances in a much more efficient and coherent way. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm really struck by um, the marketing problem that uh, you talked about before. I mean, you've previously written that the program in Ontario was scrapped because they were afraid it might work. And when I read that McMaster study of the participants in Hamilton, um, just some of the results were really striking. I mean, improved health status, like people just self-reporting better health outcomes, lost emergency room visits, better mental health, improved housing and food security, including reduced reliance on food banks and increased use of grocery stores, um, better financial habits, including debt repayment and savings, fewer use of payday loans, and almost no impact on overall employment levels, although it did create some churn. You know, lots of people using the opportunity to pursue careers that are more long-term, less seasonal, less precarious. These findings, the McMaster study is not the first study to have found these uh, things out. How do you effectively market all of these benefits? So generally speaking, I, I think most people can understand that the costs of poverty costs us more as a society and that a basic income is one potential solution for them to, for us as a society to, to tackle that challenge. Um, but they have those fears around, around work. And Hugh's right in terms of the marketing being the challenge that um, we need to demonstrate to people how much more savings we could have for, for the rest of the province or for the rest of the country and what we could do with that money to reinvest in the system. If, if healthcare goes down by 8.5%, what does that mean for the system? How many more beds does that mean? How many more ICU spots does that mean? How many more doctors does that mean that we can hire? How much better can the system get? When we save a billion dollars in the justice system, what does that mean in terms of uh, of employment? I know there are those on the on the left wing, on the progressive side, who are worried about the employees uh, in the government who would potentially 
lose their jobs because their jobs are in the industry of poverty is helping people get out of it. And if we had no poverty all of a sudden or a much reduced rate of poverty, what would they do? Um, so there's still a lot of questions around that. And I think we need to do better in terms of sharing all the studies. I mean, there was a, a meta study done recently that talked about 16 different pilots uh, around the world that had over 105,000 participants and showed that the employment rate did not go down. People's uh, health and well-being went up and it had a huge impact, a positive impact on society and the economy. That's the other piece is that this can be an economic program and should be viewed as an economic program. Um, in addition to solving a lot of the issues around poverty. But too many people still have this, it's something for nothing uh, mentality. And we need, to, we need to really think hard about how we get past that first line. So I agree, I agree with, with Alvin. Um, and I would say this, I think there's, as is often the case you, in any kind of marketing undertaking, there are two levels. There is the broad level of, this is why we're doing it, and this is how it's going to make a big difference in people's lives, everybody's life, not just the recipients, but everybody's life. And then there's the more micro level, which is dealing with those specific concerns that Alvin said were raised with him as he went across the province making the case for this in a detailed way. Um, and um, you've got to be able to operate at both levels. Um, and I would argue, for example, that... Um, in the circumstance of individuals who um, have no relationship to the labor market, who are now recipients of Ontario Works or ODSP, the reason they don't have a relationship with the labor market is because the rules of those programs discourage them from working. The rules of those programs, most people are stunned when I say, you know, the, um, the mythology of the, um, um, of the uh, welfare queen sitting on the couch eating bonbons and watching soap operas uh, isn't real. Uh, but please understand, that's what welfare mandates. Welfare says if you earn more than 200 bucks a month extra beyond what you're getting paid, we will tax it back dollar for dollar. We'll reduce your grant by every dollar you earn above a couple hundred bucks a month. So why would they work? So that, and that's the same thing with ODSP. So if you have programs that now discourage work, what about a program that encourages work, gives you a base, so you know you can basically survive, but if you want to do better, as most of us do, than just that, if you work, you'll be able to keep a good chunk of what you earn. And then when you reach the same level uh, of income as you're getting with the basic grant, you'll pay the same level of taxation as every other Canadian pays, but you'll be in the workforce. And what was really interesting about Professor Luchuk's study at McMaster, as Chris mentioned earlier, is that it indicated there was no change between Hamilton, Brantford, pretty urbanized area, uh, and the results in Dauphin, a rural community, uh, basically a Ukrainian farming community in Manitoba back in 1975. People worked. Participation in the labor force was not diminished. People showed up to work because the base gave them the freedom to know that if there was some difficulty, they would survive, but they still wanted to work. They were proud and committed people, and most people do. The vast majority of able-bodied people in this country do want to work, but sometimes, particularly in the gig economy, particularly in parts of the economy that relate to high technology, 
where a lot of people work uh, not for salary but for options they might produce some money for them somewhere in the future depending on how that company does people need a base they need a cushion which is why there's now an organization in ontario called ceos for the basic income and these are private sector leaders who are running very compelling companies who have who have made the case that the kinds of folks that they need to work with need liquidity Sometimes their companies can produce that liquidity, sometimes we can't, but the economy as a whole would benefit from liquidity. And the gentleman who was the head of the um, Federal Reserve during the 0809 credit crash in the United States, and I cannot remember his name, but we are fortunate that he did his PhD thesis many years earlier on the failures of the post-depression revival campaign brought in the United States. And the core failure was insufficient liquidity, insufficient circulation of cash to get the economy going. There was two phases. First, um, there was uh, collapse, and then there was austerity. So the collapse was horrific, austerity was worse. And that's produced a second, a second round of depression in the 1930s, which helped contribute in some way, shape, or form to World War II which is a hell of a way to solve a poverty problem, not a very constructive way to go. And that's why he was in favor of massive liquidity. And we did the same in Canada. The Harper government, not seen as this hard left-wing government, um, mandated central mortgage and housing to give the banks $362 billion so that the banks could sell to central mortgage and housing all their mortgages, which were producing. They were good mortgages. People were paying them. They had the right margins and, and ratios. So the banks had $362 billion in liquidity. So when folks went to a cash machine, there was cash. People trying to make small business loans couldn't get a small business loan because credit had dried up in the United States yeah. and it had a contagion effect right across the banking system overall. So I think we have to think about how you market the proposition more effectively. Um, but I do believe that we're going to see... Um, soil that is much more much more capable to withstand these kinds of green shoots than would have been the case before this this terrible crisis we're going through now so ben bernanke was the uh, chair of the fed ben, uh, that's right yeah ben that's right but the the other thing that i saw <clears throat> especially around ontario was there was there were two different audiences that needed to hear the message of a basic income and i think that was sort of what you were talking about in terms of the messaging, the high level messaging, what people need to hear. And one of them was this sort of, how does this affect me and why should I care, right? And we have to put it into context as to how this would affect society as a whole and how we could use your tax dollars better and things like that. And some people cared about poverty, but it's, as a lot of people might tell you, there's, that's not a vote rich subject, right? It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, pulling on heartstrings doesn't necessarily um, motivate voters to to come to your side or to the, to the cause and and to support the the idea of basic income. But when you start talking about the future of work, about the precarity of work, about automation and AI, why those CEOs came out and supported a basic income, a number of them uh, were also part of my campaign. And then you started here seeing some people perk up and and have some interest around. Oh, tell me a little bit more about that. And they were surprised in terms of how much the need of this, how quickly the need for a basic income might be, uh, might be happening. 
Now, we didn't know that it was going to be a week after the convention that suddenly the COVID crisis would, would take over. Um, but most people were looking at this as a, a, an issue in terms of automation and AI as being something that would happen decades down the road. But the studies have shown recently that one out of every three jobs are at risk in the next 10 years. When the number one job for, for any male in Canada is truck driver and the number one job for any woman in Canada is, uh, is retail worker and you start looking at what's getting shut down right now and that's not including any of the automation area that's coming out, then you start seeing the precarity of the entire economy and the entire system uh, being based around these jobs. So we need to do a better job putting that into context for people so that they understand that um, not that just their jobs are at risk, but that the entire framework of society is at risk if we don't address these problems now. And I think this is the perfect opportunity. We had, um, we introduced uh, income tax uh, to, to fund the great wars. And uh, this, could be, this could be our moment to, uh, to fund a basic income, I believe. History doesn't predict, but it does, it does help us understand a little bit. And um, when Tommy Douglas uh, brought in universal health insurance in Saskatchewan, um, he had all the arguments being thrown at him that are being thrown at us. Arguments like, well, we can't afford this. Who can afford this? It's completely, it's, it's, don't forget, you know, they've been through the depression and Saskatchewan, been through the Dust Bowl and all those things. We can't afford this. And, um, and Tommy Douglas's argument was, well, we actually can't afford not to do this. Um, because, and you know, he was, he was encouraged by the national health system in the, in the United Kingdom and, and labor governments there and all the rest. But in the end, it transferred right across the country because of Mike Pearson and John Diefenbaker and others who all did their, did their, did their part. And now we couldn't imagine operating without it in Canada. And, and I remember um, a very distinguished Canadian business leader. I think he's retired now, but he was the person who started an organization called Imagine. And Imagine was an organization whose purpose was to get businesses to understand that if you're going to have a healthy community, you should, you should not only contribute money, you should contribute your best people to work in the philanthropic areas to make sure that those organizations are well run and efficient and help the people they're supposed to help. And he would often meet with what I called, you know, um, really superb blue chippers, you know, at lunch in one of the, in one of the gathering rooms at the Toronto club. Right? And he would say, now look, I know you're all well, well off and you're in great shape. And he was very well off himself. He was a person of some substantial means. And I think, you know, you worry that if you have a health problem or this, you go to the Mayo Clinic or the Cleveland Clinic and you don't have to worry. But let me be perfectly clear. If any one of you had a heart attack here now, you'd be dependent on the public system. A publicly paid ambulance would come to stabilize you, hopefully, and get you to a publicly run hospital where they'd stabilize you to make sure you're okay. Then if you want to go to the Mayo Clinic because you can afford it, be my guest. But all of us he said, are one event away, doesn't matter how wealthy we are, from depending upon the public system. And the truth is, if you go into an emergency ward, not perhaps during this coronavirus period, but generally speaking in Ontario, the vast majority of people sitting there are people from the lowest rung of the economic frame who don't have any money, they don't have a general practitioner, they have nowhere else to go. Often they have a chronic illness that has produced some kind of circumstance where they go into emergency and when emergency sorts out and, and the population health people at St. Matt, St. Mike's have been very clear about this, 
the best thing you could possibly do for them is write a prescription for better food, better housing, more exercise, rather than a prescription for drugs, and or get more cash. Because it's and and Danielle Martin, uh, a general practitioner and the VP of research at uh, Women's College, has talked about this in her own practice in the in the city of Toronto. And so, guess what? Between the demographic shift to an older population. Um, and however well you may be, at some point in that cycle, you may need hospitalization. Um, and the amount of low-income people who get sick sooner, end up in hospital faster, stay there longer because they have nowhere else to go, the system is not going to be able to sustain the demand from both of those groups. And we can't do much about the demographic thing. People are what they are, and they will age when they age, and they will have illnesses when they do. But we can do a lot about low-income people by not by, by breaking the pathology of poverty. And that's what the Luchuk, that's what the Luchuk study, Chris, which you referenced so so uh, accurately indicated about what happens when people aren't driven by the chaos of no cash to pay the rent or give them food for school and how their health and their whole prospect in life begins to improve. So it's an investment actually in our own security for every Ontario. One of the things that I've been struck by throughout this whole conversation is, you know, we have a lot of instances throughout the last century of people thinking about this problem rationally in multiple political parties. Um, I'm thinking back to, you know, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld advising Nixon about this. And I guess looking back at the history, where do we think things changed in the conservative movement because when I think of you know I grew up in the 90s and very much with a pervasive idea of if you don't have means it's your fault and you are somehow deficient as a person and less deserving of the public good and and the public and public resources Uh, yeah, and, and and like that was the predominant memory of messages coming from conservative parties when I was growing up. And I'm curious, like it's a lot of the same people involved in a lot of these same movements. What 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 changed? What forces inflected? I'm just I like the history aspect of this is so interesting to me. Uh, I'll let Alvin go. I mean, I have um, I have my own view of the 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 British Prime Minister and American President. We should blame for this transition. <laughs> Oh, geez. I mean, I don't really know what changed other than you have, I mean, Hugh's been talking about this for decades and, and, and that's great, but why were people afraid of the data that was coming out of the, the dolphin study in, in Manitoba? Why was that buried by those that, by that conservative government of the time? Um, and, and why didn't liberals in Ontario propose this sooner? Why did we not have a pilot immediately after you know, Kathleen took uh, took office, and then you know we could have had a four year study, and we could have implemented it fully and shown people that there was a there was a need for this. There, there, there's a lot of education that needs to be done here. And what I'm worried about, and we sort of alluded to this earlier, is the the permanent civil service, right? The permanent bureaucracy that exists is adverse to change, and they make it challenging for those who worked in government before to implement change. So, you know, I'm curious, and, and I wonder, Hugh, what you think about this. What is the biggest hang-up within a government, within the bureaucracy, within the civil service 
that they don't feel that this is a solution that they're ready to support or even recommend. So I would argue that in every finance department in the world, let alone Ontario and Canada, in the world, there is a hardcore of people who are opposed to this change. And let me explain to you why. When you bring in this kind of statutory change, think about OHIP for a moment, right? So um, the amount of money that OHIP spends is not based on the discretion of the minister, right? There are negotiations every year between the government and the providers as to how much they will pay for this procedure or that procedure. But in terms of the gross expenditure, that is established by the law that sets up OHIP. And the fact is that any Ontarian who shows up at a hospital with an OHIP card and has need of care will get the care regardless of their financial capacity. And that goes on to the provincial bill that OHIP pays. That's, that's established. Um, if you did that with income support, if you did that with something like the basic income, that would be another program of that nature, which was not defined by civil servants deciding how much the minister should announce or how much the minister should negotiate or how much the minister might want to do boutique programs, but rather what the actual demand is in the province. So that reduces their discretion. That reduces their ability to give advice to the minister and reduces the ministers. And, and every civil servant can say to themselves, our job, is to protect the discretion of the minister. That's our job. He, make, he or she makes the decision. Our job is to make sure there aren't any automatic programs that reduce his or her discretion. One of the reasons, by the way, we do military procurement at the national level so badly, because those are big numbers. And the minute you commit to a, uh, to a shipbuilding program or to fighter jets or whatever, well, that's the amount of money you can't spend somewhere else. And it's money that's spent over many years. So that's why civil servants are very, very slow and very resistant to those kinds of changes. So that's that's one opposition group. The other, the group you referenced earlier, Alvin, the folks on the right who say, well, if you pay people not to work, they won't work. And why should they? Even though the statistics indicate there's no truth to that assumption. And then the third group are our friends on the far left who are worried about solid public sector jobs that are unionized, members pay dues to that union, being replaced by this new mechanism. And um, there's no actual truth to that. There was a pilot project in Ottawa Carleton where people working for Ontario Works with, by the way, these public servants carry huge caseloads. It's not easy work. And I, I, I don't question the good faith of any of them, frankly. Well, they had their caseload numbers cut and they were given a free pot of money to spend the way they wanted to spend it to help people out of poverty, not keep them trapped in welfare, but help, well, morale in the office went up and a whole bunch of people came up with some really interesting ideas, better education for this person, maybe some childcare for that person so they could go out and work, a whole bunch of things. And they actually reduced the gross um, caseload because people actually were helped out of poverty. And I think a whole bunch of the public servants certainly that I've met, who care about poverty. They didn't join up to be um, auditors. They didn't join up to be policemen to ask whether you're still poor, right? Can you prove that you're still poor, which is basically what you have to do. They actually, when they got their degrees, their undergraduate or graduate degrees at university or college, they went to actually help people. And they don't have the freedom to do so because of the constraints of the program. So I don't think those people would lose any work at all. I think over time, if we had this automatic top up for people, you might not have to hire as many people in 10 years time to run the program as we have to have now. 
but I don't think anybody who's now working in the program would lose any work. I would say the beginning of this notion that Chris raised early on um, about if, you know, if you're not doing well, it's your fault, really goes back in the modern era to the Thatcher and Reagan period. So Mrs. Thatcher, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, President Reagan, there are things they did that I admired. But on this issue, when they basically massively reduced the tax burden on higher income people, allegedly on the trickle down theory, right, they actually began to constrain the ability of the public sector to innovate and make changes because the income strain was reduced, the amount of money coming in from normal tax rates. The way in which we built our social infrastructure after World War II was by reducing the taxes on the middle class, but having very high taxes on the very, very wealthy. And that was seen to be appropriate as a way to redistribute and reinvest so we could build schools and hospitals and highways and all the other things which constituted the great growth spurt after World War II. So I give Thatcher and Reagan some of the blame for reducing this notion that we're all in this together and creating the notion. Remember, Mrs. Thatcher was the one who insisted that if you receive welfare, you have to work. And Bill Clinton did the same thing. By yeah. the way, Bill Clinton did the same thing. And that's where that kind of came from because of this notion that if you're poor, uh, it's because of some moral failing. And that goes back, I don't know, to the poor laws of the 18th century. That's how far back that goes. But we don't, um, we don't have a view if a bank is in financial difficulty because it made very risky decisions, we don't think that's a moral failing. We just provide them with the liquidity they need to do well. But if an individual is in a liquidity crunch for whatever reason, well, then we're prepared to ask, well, can we afford to help? And is there some moral failing associated with that? And I just think that's a double standard. I don't think it's reasonable. And I don't think Canadians will accept it for much longer. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. I want to thank Hugh Seagull for coming on the pod. It is really rare you get to talk to someone with such a wealth of experience um, in really just every facet of Ontario politics. Uh, and someone who um, comes from such a wealth of tradition but speaks about uh, something so important in such a passionate progressive way. So Hugh, thank you so much for talking with us. We will actually be releasing another uh, segment of this discussion. We actually talked with you a little bit about basic income in COVID-19. And we also talked about some of the format that basic income can come in with uh, Alvin a little bit. So we're going to release that as a bonus pod uh, going into the weekend. Um, But for now, have a good day. Stay safe out there. And we'll talk soon.